0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our text today is 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 in a message entitled Fight the Good Fight. We've been thinking in recent weeks about distinctives of a gospel-shaped church and lessons that we might learn from Paul's message to Timothy in his role as the pastor of the church at Ephesus and we come to today to the subject of what it means to fight the good fight. And this metaphor of warfare as it relates to the Christian life is a prominent one in the Bible. The Christian life nowhere is presented as a walk in the park. We find the language of struggle and sacrifice against forces that want to destroy the things of God and oppose the people of God. And what we know is that to fight the good fight, we need conviction about what we believe. We need to have a solid understanding of that. We need to have certainty about the one in whom we believe, our trust in God. And then we need to have courage to persevere in the battle. Ian Hamilton wrote on the subject of the Christian life of battle, and he said this in part. He said, the believing life is lived out in the midst of an unrelenting warfare. The devil will contest every inch of ground and do all within his infernal powers to destroy your Christian testimony. Bank on it. This is why we should never be surprised when we find ourselves and our churches engulfed in difficulties, trials, and persecutions. Hamilton identifies at least three reasons why the Christian life is a battle. He says we have a super spiritual enemy who hates our Savior. And although the devil is a defeated enemy, he remains as a yet troublesome enemy as we move toward the end of all things. And then the world is hostile and filled with lies against the gospel of God's truth. Our Lord Jesus is the truth, and the truth exposes lies and the deceit of the world and the lies that shroud our world in darkness. And what is true of our Lord Jesus Christ is true of every Christian. The world hates God's light and will do everything it can to try to extinguish it. And if not extinguish it, at least to dim that light. And yet truth is the currency of God's kingdom. And our words are to be true. They are to be confident in the things of God. And then also uh, Hamilton identifies the fact that we still have the presence of indwelling sin in our sinful bodies even though we have the victory in Jesus as long as we reside here in the flesh uh, sin has not been fully eradicated from our lives and we struggle with it in a very real way even on a daily basis so all of that to say we are in a battle but this battle is well worth fighting and when we fight this battle we fight it in union with our Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory and we know That there will be a day. We know that there is a time coming when the battle will be no more. And Satan will be finally and forever consigned to the lake of fire. And we will experience what it means to live in the fullness of our Savior forever. And sin will trouble us no more. But in the meantime, we've been called to fight the good fight. And I begin reading here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. Here's what the Bible says. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So here's the question I want to ask and then answer in these few minutes that we have together. How are we to fight the good fight? First of all, to fight the good fight, you need to follow instruction. You'll note here in verse 18, he says, I'm giving you this instruction. Your translation may also say, I charge you or I command you. These are one in the same. It's the idea of... uh, Having something valuable that needs to be preserved and entrusted, but then also needs to be shared. So Paul is saying to Timothy, his son in the faith, I have something here that is very important that is being entrusted to you. I'm giving this charge to you. I am commanding you and you need to keep it and you also need to practice it. You need to hold on to it and defend it but you also need to exercise it. It's the same idea as back in verse 5, and it's the equivalent of an urgent command that has been handed down from a superior officer uh, to one who is under their command. Now, it would not have been easy to serve God in a pagan society like in Ephesus. Paul knew that Timothy did not have an easy assignment that had been given to him. And sometimes we look at our world and we think, well, It's worse than it's ever been, and that's not true ultimately. It might be worse than it's ever been in our particular context, or it might be worse than it's ever been in the span of our lives, and we might come to an agreement on that, but we're reminded here that since sin entered into the world, there has been an epic battle at hand. There was a battle that Timothy dealt with at Ephesus, and it's a battle that we deal with today and he was a soldier under orders, and he was there by divine appointment. God had called him. God had placed him there. God had sent him to that place. And so Paul is not giving optional suggestions here. He's reminding Timothy to act in a certain way. It's also the same wording that is used to describe the passing on of the faith uh, by faithful men to faithful men in Second Timothy 2 and verse 2. When you have heard from me, uh, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, he says, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's this idea that in the church, when we are living according to the truth of God's word and by the power of his spirit, it's not just for us to be the repository of it in our time or in our lives or in our generation. But we have been given a sacred trust that through the process of discipleship, We are to pass that truth on to others so that they can first live it and practice it in their lives, but then so also that they can share it with others. And it's an ongoing process that God uses uh, his word to do that. Now, Jude uses another uh, metaphor that comes from athletics rather than in the realm of warfare. And it was specifically wording that was used from the world of wrestling. And in Jude 1 and verse 3, he says, I felt compelled to write to you to urge you to contend for the faith. He said, listen, it's going to be required of you that you go to the mat, that you understand this struggle that you're engaged in and that you contend for the faith. And he identifies the faith in Jude 1 and verse 3 as that which was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So in this continuous struggle that doesn't end as long as we are in this life, we are understanding by way of instruction, by way of command, by way of charge, that this faith has been entrusted to us and we are anchored in it because we are anchored in God's word. It has been delivered to us by God. And as one commentator said, we distribute it again and again but it's already been delivered. It's not under development. This is not something that is subject to our opinion. This is not something that is subject to what our reading of it might be. It is the faith that has been once and for all entrusted or delivered to the saints. And we know what we know because God has revealed himself to us. God is the self-revealing God. God is the one who has made himself known to us, through his word, by his spirit, preeminently in his son. And when that is entrusted and revealed to us, we need to follow the instruction that we've been given. One commentator put it this way. He said, there is no other gospel. There can be no other gospel. Its content will be more fully understood and its implications might be developed. Its predictions will be fulfilled, but it can never be supplemented, succeeded, or supplanted. What Paul gave Timothy would help him fight against the false teachers in Ephesus and against the errors that they were promoting. Now, why can following instruction be so challenging at times for us? Why why do we feel that struggle that we're in and why do we sometimes find it uh, challenging to, to live up to what we know is true? Well, we battle in this life against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world represents a godless philosophy. The world represents a denial of and even a deconstruction of the truth. And so as not to get bogged down in multiple issues, I won't speak with a lot of specificity to that, but you have enough wisdom to be able to look into the culture that we presently live in, that is around us, And see the absolute chaos and nonsense that is being presented as valuable and true. And as people of God, we need to have the discernment by the word of God and by the revelation of God himself to see that, not to accept it as something that is acceptable, but to push back against it and say, this is what God has said. This is what we know to be true. And anything else for us would be a failure to fight the good fight of the faith. And we struggle against that world system, the world philosophy. The flesh represents the fallen nature that opposes us from within. It's committed to selfish desires. It's committed to selfish expression, serving self. And we struggle with that on a daily basis. And then we struggle against the devil and the host of fallen angels. And the Bible says that the devil has come, Jesus said, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do to you. But Jesus has come to give life and life abundant. So fight the good fight against lies that deny the truth. Fight the good fight against self-centeredness that distracts from following Jesus And fight the good fight against an enemy who wants to attack you and destroy you and deconstruct what you know to be true. To fight the good fight, you better follow instruction. Second, to fight the good fight, use your spiritual gifts. Now you'll notice here in verse 18, he says, in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. I think Paul wanted Timothy to remember that it was God who had called him. It was God who had set him apart for service. It was God who had given him instruction. It was God who had led those leaders of the church to to lay hands on him. And evidently, at some point, uh, God had spoken to Timothy through the gift of prophecy, with the words of encouragement for Timothy to stand firm. And I think it directly connects with God confirming Timothy's spiritual gifts through the laying on of hands by church leaders Uh, At his ordination, there was a prophetic word spoken over him. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. You say, when did that happen? It probably happened uh, at Lystra during Paul's second missionary journey. This was a spiritual father in Paul, recognizing that his spiritual son, was now on the front lines of a spiritual battle. And if God had called him to this, and if there had been a word of prophecy spoken over him, and if he had been given spiritual gifts with which to serve the church, and if, in fact, this was a spiritual battle, Paul is saying to him, listen, you need to remember that you were called, you were equipped, you are empowered, and now you've got to exercise what you know to be true. And you got to fight the good fight. Maintain the message that you've been given. He's saying, do not surrender. This is not the time to shrink back. This is not the time to run away. You need to remember that there is a reward awaiting you. And you need to use what God has given you for his glory and for the upbuilding of his church. Now, when we think specifically about spiritual giftings, and spiritual gifts that God gives to us, we recognize that according to Scripture, they are received at salvation. But then they are applied when you serve. So God gifts every blood-bought believer with spiritual gifts to be exercised in his church. Uh, We find the description of the church being as a family and also as a body. And also as every part of the body being important, none being insignificant. And each part needed to function for the overall well-being of the body. And then we are to exercise those spiritual gifts as we apply them in serving God. So here's how it applies to to me and to you. When Paul says to Timothy that he needs to be faithful and not neglect the gift that is in him, he's saying that gift was not all about you. That gift was for God's people. That gift was for God's kingdom. And if Timothy had been satisfied to receive the gift, but then not to use it, not to exercise it, not to implement it, he would not have fulfilled the purpose that God had for him. When God saved you, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple of his, he gifted you so that you could use your gift in service for him. And if you hold it, as though it was meant to end with you, you are not being faithful, and you are not ultimately living out the purpose that God created and redeemed you for. Spiritual gifts have been defined as divinely given capacities to perform useful functions for God, especially in spiritual service. Listen to the way Paul puts it in First Corinthians twelve and verse seven. He says, "To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good." Verse eleven. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So why do you have the spiritual gifts that you have? It's by the will of God. What's the purpose for the spiritual gifting that God has given to you? It is for service to God. And just as Paul said to Timothy, hey, don't neglect the gift. Don't lay that gift aside don't be in neutral in your spiritual life but you use it you engage you fight the good fight you use what god has entrusted to you god is saying the same thing to you today through his word fight the good fight use what god has entrusted to you now i'm going to ask an obvious question here but i'm going to ask it anyway why are spiritual gifts so important for the fight because it's a spiritual battle it's a spiritual battle it's not a battle primarily of the flesh second corinthians 10 and verse four says for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds you know what that means it means that you have a choice in the fight you can either step into this spiritual battle and try to engage in it in the flesh, or you can step into the spiritual battle and you can engage in it in the power of the spirit in dependence on God. If you engage in a spiritual battle with weapons of the flesh, you're gonna be disappointed and defeated. But if you engage in a spiritual battle with the weapons of the spirit and by the power of the spirit and in the truth of God's word, using what God has entrusted to you, you will experience the victory that God intended. It's so important. And I think too often we fall into discouragement. And one of the reasons that we fall into discouragement in the battle is because we've been fighting with the weapons of the flesh and we've gotten the results ultimately that we deserved. I love the way John Knox, the reformer, put it. He said, Mark what has been the practice of the devil from the beginning. Most cruelly to rage against God's children when God begins to show them his mercy. And therefore marvel not, dearly beloved, that this should happen to you. If Satan fume and roar against you, whether it be against your bodies by persecution or inwardly in your consciences by a spiritual battle, do not be discouraged as though you were less acceptable in God's presence or that Satan might at any time prevail against you. Oh no, he says. I have good hope and my prayer will likewise be so that you may be strengthened, that the world and Satan himself may understand and perceive that God is fighting your battle. The Bible uses the language of God going before us and also being our rear guard. And as you engage in this battle, do not underestimate the significance of the power of prayer And dependence on the Holy Spirit in the fight. Here's one of the tendencies I think we sometimes have. Everybody gets real spiritual in the moment of crisis. We pray more than we might at other times. We look into the Bible more than we might at other times when we're in the midst of the fight. That's not the only time we should be praying intently and digging into the word intently. We should also be doing so when there's an ebb in the fight, in a moment when it might seem like there's peace in your life and you don't have any major obstacle that's in front of you or any significant spiritual battle that you're feeling at the moment. It's in those times that prayer and the word are even more important and dependence on the Holy Spirit is even more important because God prepares you. In those times for when the fight intensifies. Think about using the military analogy. Uh, They don't just pull out their weapons and uh, prepare uh, for the battle when the battle is raging. They do all sorts of training and preparation and getting ready and practicing and making sure that they are ready to face whatever might come. In the realm of athletics, it's the same way. They don't show up at the match or turn out for the game, and that's the only time they did any of it. They've been practicing, they've been preparing themselves, they've been getting ready, they've been getting stronger. And it's the same way spiritually. So we cannot overstate the importance of spending time in the Word and in prayer. Because what are we doing? We're growing in our relationship with God. We're strengthening in our faith. We're reminding ourselves of what we believe and know to be true. We're being filled with the Spirit continually, as the Scripture says. We're growing in our knowledge of the word of God as disciples so that when the devil slings those fiery darts against us, we're able to armor up and be prepared for the fight. And it's so important that we don't engage in the fight in our own strength. To fight the good fight, use your spiritual gifts. Use what God has entrusted to you. And then third, to fight the good fight, have faith and maintain a good conscience. That's what he says here in verse 19. Now, when we're in the battle, we are sometimes prone to doubt. That's part of our probably fallen nature that still resides, Uh, especially if we're depending on ourselves. We start asking all kinds of questions and we start preparing for all types of contingencies of what we're going to do and how we're going to solve our own problems. And we start letting that doubt creep in a little bit. And well, am I going to Uh, fail like I did last time? Am I going to be defeated against this attack of the enemy like I was last time? Am I going to fall into that same uh, way of living and pattern of thinking as I did the last time? And the devil's there all the time to tell you your weaknesses and to remind you of the things that you've done wrong. He's the accuser of the brethren. But when we doubt, we go back to the faith that we have that is so important And I think faith here can refer to both doctrine and trust. So in other words, when he references having faith in verse 19, I think it can refer to both the body of doctrine, the faith that has been once and for all delivered or entrusted to the saints, and it can also be the exercise of faith. After all, the Bible says that without faith it is impossible to please God. So when we exercise faith, we are pleasing Him. And what is faith? Faith is believing what God has told you to be True. And Timothy needed to have faith that God was in control and God would see him through. Listen to the way John puts it in 1 John 5 and verse 4 and 5. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this victory that has overcome the world is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So make this connection. If you believe, the Bible says that you are an overcomer. Now, you might not feel like an overcomer today. You might feel like you're defeated. You might feel like you're discouraged in this moment. And maybe what God wanted you to hear today is that if your faith is in the Son of God, if you're believing in Him, you are an overcomer. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever battle it is that you're engaging in, whatever fight it is that you're up against, you are an overcomer. If you're in Christ, because we rest in the victory that Christ has won, not in what we can do or what we're capable of mustering up the strength to do. But he also mentions a conscience here. We've already addressed this idea of conscience once before, but uh, here we find the idea of the conscience that God gives us so that we can know what is right and wrong and be able to fight the good fight, guided by the word and the Spirit. Now a good conscience is consistent with a heart that wants to do what God says is right and it's consistent with not wanting to do what God says is wrong. Ray Steadman put it this way, he said, a good conscience works with faith that which lays hold of the resources of God in dependence on him so a good conscience is the discipline of the mind and the will that says I will follow my Lord And I will do what he says. Hebrews 13 and verse 18 says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Now that conscience can also be what God uses to make you aware of your sin. And when conviction comes upon us, conviction comes upon us because we are aware of what is right and we're also aware if our lives are inconsistent with that and the spirit of god brings to bear that truth on us and we get this feeling in our minds and our hearts and our conscience that we're not pleasing god with what we're doing and how we're living as a believer that's a good sign because it's evidence of the testimony of the Spirit in your life through His Word. And when that happens, don't put God off. Don't try to push it away or push it back. Deal with it in that moment with a repentant spirit. We should not only repent when we believe and trust in Christ and receive the gift of salvation, but we should live a repentant life. We should claim the truth of 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we should be aware of those things that are inconsistent in our lives with what God wants us to be and to do. After all, this is a big part of what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus as the preeminent focus, God's will for us to be conformed to him as we grow in his likeness, and our submission to him as we live our lives. Faith and Christian living cannot be separated. They're not compartments. They are together, and they're to be exercised together. Now, I thought of uh, Daniel in the Old Testament, of course, a great example of a man whose faith worked because he had a good conscience. You remember he knew God alone could save him from his enemies, even if he was killed for his obedience. Now, we all like that story of Daniel. We know that story of Daniel. Daniel and uh, we love to tell it but think about putting yourself in his place what if you were taken into exile into a foreign land that was unfamiliar to you in the midst of a pagan environment you had to live out your faith for God even though it could mean it could cost you your life would you maintain faith and a good conscience before the Lord and In spite of being taken into exile, as the story goes, through a life of faithfulness, Daniel rose through the political ranks as an administrator in a pagan kingdom. They couldn't find anything that he had done wrong, so they turned his own faith on him and against him. And they tricked the king into passing a decree that said anyone who prayed to another god or another man other than the king would be thrown into the lion's den. And what did Daniel do? He did what he had done his whole life. He continued to pray. He continued to seek God. The wicked enemies uh, caught him in the act and told the king. The king loved Daniel, and he realized he had put himself in a predicament with a decree that could not be revoked. And so at sundown, they threw Daniel into the den of lions. Now remember, Daniel was not a young man at this point in his life. He was in his 80s at this point in his life. And after they threw Daniel in the lion's den, the king could not rest all night. And at dawn, he ran to the lion's den and he asked Daniel if his God had protected him. And Daniel replied in Daniel 6 and verse 22, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. And the king in turn issued a decree ordering the people to fear and to reverence the God of Daniel. Daniel. Did you know today that as we sit here and stand here in relative ease and comfort with all the provisions that a human being could possibly think they would need or want in peace and prosperity, that there are believers around the world who love God just as much as you do, maybe even more, who are just as faithful as you are, maybe even more, and simply For calling on the name of Jesus and identifying themselves as Christians, their lives are at stake. And yet what do they do? They continue on. They keep serving faithfully. They maintain faith and a good conscience. What an example for us, not just Daniel from times past, but people today who are putting on the armor of God and the protection that God has given for the fight. And the message from Paul to Timothy and the message to us is hold on to and treasure your faith more than anything else that you have. Jesus is our treasure. We have nothing else that could be more highly valued than our faith. And as we hold on to that faith and as we treasure that faith and as we believe and exercise that faith, we need to do what we know is right. We need to live it, and there should not be an inconsistency with what we say we believe about this word and how we live. We ought to believe it by faith, and then we ought to live it out with a good conscience. But finally, I want to show you that there are consequences for rejecting the faith. Look now again at verse 19, and then the last part here in verse 20. Some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Timothy was the leader in the church, and every leader who teaches God's word and maintains faith in a good conscience will deal with conflict and will deal with people who cause trouble in the church. The problem Paul references are two people specifically who by their actions have rejected the faith and blasphemed, and he names them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul's not afraid to name people who are in opposition to what the church is doing and the truth of God's word. It's not in violation of the commandment not to judge. He's just calling it as it is. He's stating the obvious. He says here, Hymenaeus, and alexander now second timothy 2 and verse 18 provides further commentary at least in that particular instance on what hymenaeus had done Uh, he's listed first again in that passage which makes us believe that he was the ringleader of a lot of trouble and he had along with philetus gotten caught up in profane and idle babblings nonsense just talking and saying things that were not true and were in error And as the scripture says, departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already taken place and ruining the faith of some. Now we don't know exactly what that means, but essentially I think they were teaching that the resurrection of people had already occurred and there was no hope yet in the future. And in saying that there was no resurrection to come, that it had already happened, it overthrew the faith of some and it was a rejection of the faith on their behalf. Specifically here in 1 Timothy, he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander blasphemed. In a specific sense, uh, to blaspheme means irreverence or disrespect toward God. Or it could mean specifically claiming the, to possess deity when you, in fact, are not God. And in doing so, they shipwrecked the faith by rejecting the truth and following error. So here's the picture that we get. They veered off course and they drifted into the rocks. The ship crashed and it sank. Now, I think these were people who at some point had professed faith, but their actions proved otherwise, that it was not genuine. And they were delivered to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. And what we have here is a picture of church discipline. They were put outside of the church. They were put into the world. They were put into the domain of the devil because of their actions. Now, it's two things here are important for us to note. Number one, we don't want to be those people who have to be put out because our faith was not genuine and we ultimately were opponents of the gospel and of the truth. But then also for the church, it means the church has to be willing to call out error when it arises. And I could take you today to churches that were once stalwarts of the faith. They were pillars of the truth. They were uh, a grand representation of the things of God. And there are many reasons why many of those churches today are not, and why they're teaching error, and why they fall into a shadow of themselves, or even died as an organization. But I think one of the main things that has happened to many of them is that along the way, there were people like Hymenaeus and Alexander and Philetus who came in, And they started teaching things and propagating things that were profane and idle babblings. They were contrary to the truth. They were in opposition. And nobody had the courage to say anything about it. And it took root. And when it took root, it grew. And when it grew, it became a major problem. And then the downfall of those particular churches came. So this says to us in the church... We can either fight the good fight and shine the light on truth or we can be people who cause others to make a shipwreck of their faith. And it's clear which one we want to be. I share this illustration with you in closing. For more than 40 years, a lighthouse stood on a large peninsula jutting into the Tasman Sea in southern Australia. It stood at a place where it shouldn't have been luring ships into the very rocks they were trying to avoid. The cliffs around Cape St. George, just south of Jervis Bay, were notorious for shipwrecks. So it was decided that a lighthouse was needed for the safe navigation of coastal shipping. In 1857, the colonial architect Alexander Dawson began to look for a site that was suitable for a lighthouse on Cape St. George. Unfortunately, Dawson was more interested in the ease of construction than he was providing an efficient navigation aid. So when the pilot's board went to verify the location Dawson chose, they found that the site was not visible from the required approaches. They also found that Dawson's map suffered from, and I quote, discrepancies so grave that it is impossible to decide whether positions marked on the map really exist. The board also suspected that Dawson had chosen the site solely because it was situated close to a quarry where he was going to obtain the stones to build the lighthouse with. But shockingly, despite the glaring deficiencies and a disagreement by the majority of the board, for reasons not known, the chairman of the board authorized the construction of the lighthouse. For the next four decades, the ill sided lighthouse was responsible for more than two dozen shipwrecks. Eventually, in 1899, the lighthouse was replaced by the point perpendicular lighthouse in a much more suitable location on this part of the coast. But even after decommissioning, the lighthouse continued to cause navigational problems, especially on moonlit nights when the golden sandstone tower glowed in the dark and led ships astray. So near the turn of the century, the tower was reduced to rubble to prevent any further disaster. There are people who call themselves Christians and organizations who call themselves churches who are no different than this lighthouse that was leading those ships to be wrecked. And it would be better that they be torn down And become a pile of rubble than it would be to lead people astray and make a shipwreck of the faith. We can either fight the good fight and we can shine the light on the truth. Or we can be people who cause others to make a shipwreck of the faith. And we want to be a people who stand strong. Because we have a conviction about who we believe in and what we believe to be true. We have confidence in God, our Father, and in Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit as our guide. And we have the courage to call it as it is and to live consistently with what we say we believe. That's what we want to do as believers, and that's who we want to be as a church. Father, thank you today that this church has stood for many years now, As a testimony to truth, as a defender of truth, with people who have not been afraid to stand for the truth. And I pray that in this age that we live in that is growing increasingly difficult with so many people who are calling right wrong and wrong right. In in an environment that has to be very similar to what Timothy experienced in Ephesus. I pray that you would find us faithful. That we would not be a people who become a cautionary tale of what could have been had we stayed faithful. But that you would help us as we fight the good fight. And as we're consistent with what your word teaches is true. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And there may be some here today who are, who are struggling with some area in their life. There's a, there's a stronghold that they've not been able to overcome. There's an attack that has come against them spiritually. There's a discouragement that has been placed in front of them. And I pray that they would recognize that they are overcomers in Christ. And today rest in that victory. And live according to it. I pray also, Father, for any who would hear this message and have not yet trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I pray that they would look to the one who is the light of the world. The one who is the hope of eternity. The one in whom salvation resides, that they would be willing to turn from their sins today and trust in Jesus for their salvation and eternal life. We give this time of close over to you, Lord. Be honored and glorified through it. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.